Dear Lord, we do thank you for the gift of Christian fellowship. We thank you that we center this fellowship not around our love for each other, as powerful and wonderful as that is, but around our love for you and our appreciation for what you have given us through the living word, Jesus, and through the written word, the Bible. Guide us in our study of your sacred word today that we, through the written word, will come to love even more deeply the living word, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's, I had not planned to be here today, I will tell you, uh, but your real, pre, real fill-in preacher, Dr. Woodrow Burt, uh, was unable to be here because of some illness in the family. And uh, so he sends his regrets, but uh, you're stuck with me for today, and that's okay. Uh, <clears throat> as you know from previous experience, perhaps, um, when I preach at Big Creek Presbyterian, and in this case, Big Big Creek Presbyterian, this is an amazing uh, group, I didn't know you know I was coming, but uh, you did, and you showed up, so thank you for that. Uh, but seriously, I, I love to see, this is a Foreman reunion, is that right, Foreman family reunion? What an amazing family. This is a beautiful uh, view from up here. Dozens of you guys here, and it, uh, you're here because you love your family and you love the Lord, and you have a wonderful Christian heritage. I hope as a family you'll appreciate that Christian heritage that God has blessed you with. But um, when I do come and, and fill in here, I uh, try to go with uh, passages that are used around the world. There's a list of uh, recommended Bible verses to be preached from, uh, and churches around the world by the tens of thousands use these verses. Uh, every 52 weeks, they preach through the life of Jesus and the key events in his life and key doctrines from the Christian Bible. Today, the focus is on the parables of Jesus. And uh, today's selection actually is perhaps the most famous of Jesus' many parables. There's a disagreement as to exactly how many parables Jesus preached, but from the 13th chapter of Matthew, which is where we're preaching from today, seven different stories, seven different parables of Jesus are enumerated. Uh, from the lips of Jesus came powerful but sometimes challenging teachings. The first of these uh, in the 13th chapter is the longest one and the one that has received the greatest attention over the years, and it's the one that is our focus for today. There's also a passage from the Old Testament that reinforces some of the teachings. We'll look at that as well. But chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, I'll be reading from the uh, Christian Standard Bible here. It says this, on that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. He was probably in the city of Capernaum, which was uh, kind of a temporary headquarters for him in, his, in uh, a portion of his public ministry. He was far away from Jerusalem, but uh, near to where the, his center of popularity was, also in the region where Peter came from, if, if it is in fact Capernaum. He was uh, sitting by the sea. Rabbis typically sat when they taught. Jesus was the ultimate rabbi, the ultimate teacher of God in his day and forever. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down. 
It's as though uh, his popularity, which was at its peak at this point, uh, he had some, uh, the first year of Jesus' ministry was when he was getting known. The crowds began to increase. He performed miracles, and word spreads very quickly when people can get free medical help and uh, that kind of thing. And um, his greatest year, his second year, as if, we, if he did in fact have a three-year ministry, and that's the most popular understanding, was the year of uh, popularity. Crowds began to assemble when they knew where he was by the thousands. And uh, while Jesus had planned to do a little bit of low-key teaching, so many people showed up, it became almost a dangerous situation. Every now and then we'll have situations that we read about in the Bible where there's um, typically some big uh, performance by a famous music artist. Uh, crowds begin, uh, something disturbs the crowds, they begin crowding together and they can crush people. It becomes a very dangerous situation. Sometimes people, you read about this every year, get crushed to death in these uh, crowds that gather for various purposes. This was beginning to get a little bit uh, dicey for Jesus. So he actually got into boat, into a boat, perhaps Peter's boat, and sat down to do his teaching from just offshore uh, in a safe setting. The whole crowd stood on the shore. Jesus must have had a pretty good voice, uh, must have been able to project uh, pretty significantly. It's been said that some of the early preachers, uh, who were very famous, uh, were had voices that could carry for half a mile and still be heard. Maybe Jesus had one of those kinds of voices. As he's sitting there, it says in verse 3, he told them many things in parables, saying, and we'll look at what he says in just a moment. What is a parable? Well, uh, a parable is a teaching story, but it's a teaching story that uses... Uh, indirect images that uses uh, things that require a little bit of thought and a little bit of interpretation to be understood. There is a long thousands-year-old tradition in the ancient Near East for the teaching tradition of, uh, of great instructors. Jesus carried on that tradition. You can see hints of it in the book of Proverbs. Uh, the Hebrew term for a proverb is, and I'll just give you a term that you'll never need again in your life. It's a mashal, okay? M-A-S-H-A-L, a mashal. A mashal was designed to be a kind of a hard walnut. Uh, we know about black walnuts around here and how they have a hard shell. Uh, if you get a good tree, if you can break through that hard shell, you can get some tasty meat on the inside, some, a very nice nutty taste. Uh, and... Um, Hebrew wisdom teachers for thousands of years, most famous in the Old Testament as uh, expressed in the writings of Solomon, contain uh, a lot of black walnuts, a lot of sayings that have something really good inside of them but are not obvious to uh, the first time, the meaning of which is not obvious the first time you read it through. Bible translators have a real challenge when they translate the book of Proverbs, and they don't want you really to know about it. Many of the Hebrew sayings in the original language that Solomon recorded were um, ambiguous. They could go three or four different ways, 
If you look at a whole series of translations of individual verses from the book of Proverbs, many times you'll see them going in ways that are completely different. And you say, whoa, how could four different versions come out with very different readings on the very same Bible verse? These are so, it can't be the same verse that they were translating. But in fact, it was. Uh, Solomon's, one of his favorite tricks was to get ambiguous language that could be taken three or four different ways and what he would do, as best we understand it, as he was teaching as the great wisdom teacher in his day, he would have students that would uh, listen to him or read his written Proverbs, and they would sit around a table, and they would all have to discuss these different possible ways to understand what he wrote down. Each of the four or five or six different possible ways to interpret that verse had some relevance, some truth. And they would have to talk about the different ways that it could be interpreted and what it might mean. Now, Bible translators don't, uh, don't want to mess with the minds of busy Americans. And so we'll pick one of those and go with that and pretend that that's the only possible meaning that's there. But in fact, uh, the wisdom tradition of the Mashal was to have things that might be taken different ways and would require some reflective analytical thought to understand a deeper truth that is actually present within the text. When Jesus told stories, what he was doing was, was using proverbs in an expanded form, teaching stories that could be taken different ways, and there might not be just one possible way to interpret it. It might be usable in various ways to explain something uh, that would be profoundly important and relevant in the lives of the people. Again, this 13th chapter gives us seven examples of the kinds of walnuts, the kinds of parables that Jesus provided to his students. Let's look at this one now in a little bit more detail. He told them many things in parables, it says in verse 3, saying, consider the sower who went out to sow. Uh, as he sowed, some, fee, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. And that was his story. It's not a particularly long story, more than one verse, a few verses long there, as it's been uh, broken up in later centuries. Um, but a familiar one. One of the things I love about preaching at Big Creek is that you all have a strong rural farming background so that you understand about seeds and sowing and about the importance of placing uh, your seed in the, at the right depth and the right kind of soil with the right kind of nutrients around it. And uh, everyone in ancient Israel understood that. It's been estimated that during, uh, especially Old Testament times, which is my area of expertise, 90% of the people were involved in food production in one way or another. Uh, many of them were farmers. Uh, some were shepherds. 
But uh, nine out of 10 folks that you met in that society were involved in food production in one form or fashion. And uh, in Jesus' day, it was very much like that as well. So that when he was talking about a sower, everybody knew what he was talking about. Now, we have amazingly expensive but incredibly useful uh, ways of putting seed in the ground today. And you all have used them. Some of you recently, probably. Uh, you can get just the right number of seeds, just the right distance apart, just the right depth, and uh, you're going to have an incredible crop, as good as can be done under the weather and uh, infestation conditions that we have uh, from year to year around here. Back in those days, you're probably familiar with this, but it certainly is true, they were not as sophisticated as we are today. If you wanted to have a good crop, you would first of all probably break up the soil if you could, uh, get that hard crust broken. Rainfall back in ancient Israel in, uh, and still today in modern Israel was not nearly what we have in North Missouri. I don't know exactly what we get from year to year, but it's approximately 40 inches or so. It's a, a good year if we get 40 inches. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Uh, in parts south of Jerusalem, if you get five inches of rain a year, it's been a good year. Jerusalem itself gets about 13 inches of rain a year on average. Points north of it and closer to the Mediterranean Sea will get uh, closer to 20 inches of rain a year. You can't grow a great crop with just 20 inches of rain by North Missouri standards, anyway. But you can get enough to survive if you're careful. The farmers would break up the soil and then they would place the uh, seed in the soil and um, pray for rain and see what happened and then just let God give them whatever he gave them. And what we have here is a sower now who, having, we understood, breaking, having broken up the soil, now goes to the next and vital, most vital step, and that is to place the seed in the ground. Without the aid of the machinery that we have today, what they would do is they would take a bag of uh, wheat, typically, could be barley, those are the two most common crops of the day, and very carefully they would uh, reach their hand into that bag and uh, just spread, with the aid of their hand, the seed into the broken soil. As, uh, in order to maximize the size of the potential crop that would come around, they sowed all the way to the edges of the field, and along the edges of the field, very much like what many farms are like today, you had a little place for um, wagons to, to go. You had a pathway that people would walk on, or animals would walk on. The soil at the very edges of the field was hard. It was uh, tramped down by animals and humans, and then wagon wheels as well. When the seed at the very edge of the field would sometimes spill over onto the road, not much happened with the seed that landed on, the, on those uh, paths along the edges of the field. Uh, he sowed, it says there in verse 4, the sower did, and some seed fell along the path. And because you don't want to destroy your road by breaking it up with your plow, uh, it just, the seed stays on the surface, and immediately the birds come down, and they devoured the seed. Uh, it was... Uh, 
my wife and I have a little bird feeder, maybe you do too, in your yard, and uh, we don't, I don't fill it every day because I'm a tightwad, but I can tell you that if you, if you did, the birds can eat up whole big bags of seed in days. Uh, so um, I only give them a few handfuls a week, and, but every time I do, they are there to eat it. And I'm sure that birds in ancient Israel in first century uh, outer regions from Jerusalem and uh, maybe near the Sea of Galilee ate as much food as the birds do today. If it's it's there on the surface, especially, and easy to get to, they're going to go to it. And they did. The seed fell along the path. The birds came and devoured those seeds. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. Israel uh, is a land of rocks. It's actually uh, was once underwater. It has a lot of limestone in it, much like North Missouri does. And uh, that limestone uh, would get broken up over the years. It forms a kind of a clay-like soil as it uh, breaks down. And, uh, but there are a lot of rocks in it. What the ancient Israelites did way before the time of Jesus, what the ancient Canaanites would do is they'd take the larger rocks and they would use them on the hills to build little walls, and then they'd fill in dirt in those uh, little retaining walls, and they'd turn the hills with the aid of the rocks, uh, turned into now walls, uh, to create little stair steps that could be used to grow uh, grapes on them in particular. So many of the uh, hillsides took advantage of the rocky soil, the rocks that were removed from the soil, uh, to uh, create walls that could be... uh, could turn otherwise unusable hills into very um, nice places to to grow uh, perennials, grapes. A lot of rocks in that soil, though, and you have to to get them out for the best crop. Uh, This was not a finished field, it sounds to me like, or maybe the rocks were too small and they were just little inconveniences. But there, there was rocky soil. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. It grew up quickly, perhaps the, uh, because of the nature of the soil. It was a little warmer than, uh, than some of the deeper soil. And um, the seeds were warmed, and they sprouted, and they grew up quickly. But they had a problem. Um, there wasn't much soil. The soil wasn't deep. And when the sun came up, the seed, now the little seedlings, were scorched. They had no root, not enough to support them, to sustain them with a little bit of water that was in the soil, and they withered away. My wife and I just got back from Texas a couple of days ago, and we drove through a lot of uh, farmland from uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and uh, Missouri. And some of the spots were nice and green, but a lot, a lot, of, a lot of the places that we drove through had uh, with, uh, the corn leaves beginning to fold in. They were dry. There uh, wasn't enough moisture around. I'm hoping that those, those fields will, will get the rain before uh, it's too late and they'll have nice crops. But some of them were definitely at risk. And in ancient Israel, again, where you can't count on any more than 20 inches of rain, and that's a good year if you get that, uh, rain was absolutely vital. And a lot, I imagine, of, of the crops that were planted in the ancient uh, fields of Israel back in Jesus' day and before withered 
before any seed turned into nice crops. And that was a common experience in their day. But verse 7 says that that's, there were other kinds of problems that they faced as well. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. They didn't have some of the nice genetically engineered seeds that we have today that can uh, withstand the poisons that we put to kill weeds and still have the crop turn out just fine. DNA, they didn't even know what DNA, Jesus would have known if he'd have wanted to about DNA, but the rest of his people around him did not. Uh, and um, so, and modification of the DNA within the plants. If you had weeds grow up with your plants, uh, with your wheat or your barley, you had to be real careful because if you mess, this, if you mess up the uh, root system of the plant that you really want too much, you're going to kill the plant. You may get rid of the weed, but you're, you're, you're going to hurt your final product as well in the field. It was not uncommon uh, beyond a certain point to just let the weeds grow up alongside uh, the, the wheat and the barley. Not much you could do about it if you, uh, you, uh, until harvest time, and then you separate out the good stuff from the bad stuff. And you try to burn the seeds from the weeds, gather them up so that you don't drop all the seeds in the field, so that uh, you'll have minimal uh, weeds the next season. That's just the way they had to do it back in those days. Burn the seeds of the weeds and uh, hope that you didn't leave too many seeds behind when you gathered up the weeds. And in this field, there uh, were a lot of weeds in some parts of the field. Uh, the seed that fell among the thorns had to compete for the moisture. When the thorns came up, they choked off the good stuff. And that doesn't mean that there was absolutely no uh, produce, but if there was any at all, it wasn't very good. Uh, they got choked. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit. Some a hundred, some sixty, and thirty times what was sown. That's a good head of wheat. My grandfather, I worked on his farm out in western Kansas, non-irrigated uh, field. He had a section of land. Um, if he could get 30 bushels to the, uh, to the acre in, uh, under his conditions, it was a good year for him. Sometimes he actually got 35. I think the highest he ever got was close to 40. Uh, but typically it was in the 20s uh, on, a, on a mediocre year for him, 20 bushels per acre. Not all that great, but um, it got him by, and he and Grandma uh, farmed until they were too old to farm anymore. It worked out for him. Uh, I don't know that I've never, uh, as a kid, I never tried to count the number of uh, seeds that came on a, on a head of wheat, but I'd be surprised if it was a full hundred. Uh, but Jesus said that some of, in the good soil, some of those heads could produce a hundred seeds from just a single seed, a hundredfold increase. I wish my retirement funds had produced a hundredfold increase. Uh, they never did. Uh, they never did. They didn't even get 60-fold or 30-fold. But, uh, but my wife and I did make it to retirement anyway. Um, thank you, Social Security. And um, so farmers cooperate with God 
to do really one of the great miracles of life that keeps us all here today. They produce food with God's help. And even if the whole field doesn't produce a hundredfold increase, or even 60-fold, or even 30-fold, and the seed that fell on that um, path did not produce anything, the seeds that grew up and were dead within a month didn't produce anything. The seeds that got choked might or might not have produced something. But there were spots in the field that did produce amazingly well, uh, beautiful heads of wheat uh, or barley, and uh, a hundredfold increase in some select cases. Jesus ended the parable, and it was just a story, just a story, a story that everybody already knew because they all grew up around farms. But there was no explanation to it. And so Jesus said, let anyone who has ears listen. And then it says in verse 10, as part of today's reading that thousands of churches are are going through, the disciples, it says in verse 10, came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? Well, for one thing, Jesus was a direct descendant of Solomon. And so I think it was kind of a family tradition. Uh, He's kind of picking up uh, on the great... Jesus was the fulfillment of all, uh, of, he, he was the ultimate example of the Davidic line in the Old Testament. He was uh, really the greatest Israelite that ever lived, but he picked up on the, on the royal strain with King David, a direct descendant of his. He picked up on the wisdom uh, of Solomon and, and brought those two together, Jesus being the greatest king, he's the king of heaven, not the king of any earthly uh, domain. Uh, but he also was the, the consummate expression of wisdom in the Bible as well. But his disciples did not always appreciate these little puzzle stories, these walnuts. Why, do you, why are you speaking to them in parables? And so Jesus answered them there in verse 11, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, the secrets, aha, these things are not always obvious truths. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but has not been given to them. Jesus purposely told stories that had a protective shell on them so that those who really didn't care about, about Christianity ultimately, who did not care about um, the deeper spiritual side of life, who were living only for the moment, living for the pleasures of the body, they wouldn't be troubled by his stuff. It wouldn't get in their way of their pagan way of life if they didn't want to hear anything more than his uh, probably minute-long, two-minute-long story there. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you, but it's not been given for them, Uh, not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. Have you ever taken the time to try to get into a, uh, a ritual, a, a routine of reading the, uh, maybe even a whole chapter of the Bible a day, at least a verse a day from the Bible? Uh, it, I hope you can find enough time in your schedule. I hope you'll build enough time into your schedule to where you can read at least, a, at least one little bit of the Bible a day whether it's a page-a-day verse cal- uh, Bible verse calendar or whether you take the time to read a whole chapter 
or like a lot of people do, as you're going down the road, get some sort of little uh, Bible app where you can plug it into your sound system and just listen to the Bible being read to you as you're going down the road. It's a very nice possibility that we have these days. But getting into some sort of pattern of uh, hearing or reading the Bible at least a little bit every day. If you'll do that and then take the time not only to hear it but to think about it, it's amazing how much more you can get out of it. Taking the time not just to read it but to think about it uh, is even more valuable than just going through the routine of quickly reading that page a day or whatever it might be, uh, Bible verse. And um, as a Bible teacher, and my wife and I taught, for 30, taught Bible for 32 years at Hannibal LaGrange, um, we, we get to read these passages every year, and it's great. But what we find is that after 32 years of teaching, there's still new stuff to learn in these things. There's still little, little parts within that nut uh, that, if you, that you didn't get out, that little piece of meat from that one little corner of the walnut that you didn't get out the first time. There's more to it than, than you might have thought. And uh, Jesus' teaching stories, all the words of God in the Bible, are, are designed in such a way that there's more there than you can get the first time around. There's more than you can get the second time around. And even after 32 years of teaching it, there's still new stuff in there. If you'll take the time to think about it, to reflect on it, and sometimes even to talk about it with other people. The power of a home Bible study event. And some of you uh, might actually participate in weekly Bible study events uh, in somebody's house or something like that. Uh, is that uh, th these are good things. Not only is the food usually tolerable, uh, and uh, maybe the noise level's a little high, but depending, they're still really, they're great opportunities to, to meet with other Christians and to encourage one another, but also to maybe dig out some of those little treasures from the Bible that, uh, even from familiar Bible passages, that somebody saw that you didn't. Uh, and maybe you saw something that they didn't, and you can share it with them, and it can be a really good thing. Uh, but Jesus said, uh, whoever has, more will be given to him. God gave us the Bible, but the Bible really is far deeper and more meaningful than, than you can possibly know from just a single reading of it. Take the time to dig a little bit. Take the time to talk about it with other people. Take the time to, again, if you're going down the road and uh, don't want to listen to the latest uh, AM talk show or whatever, uh, there are some podcasts from great Christian preachers, uh, and some of them aren't even here with us anymore, but they left their sermons behind, and you can listen to them as you're going down the road, and they may dig out a nugget or two uh, that, that can be of help to you as well. That's a possibility for you to think about. Uh, whoever has, more will be given to him. He'll have more than enough. But whoever does not have, the folks who say, ah, got to go to church, yeah, I heard the sermon, but I fought, forgot it as quick as I could, and hopefully I slept through most of it. Uh, if I didn't, uh, I did try to forget after what I got out of it. Whoever does not have, even what he does have, will be taken away from him. These stories can be, uh, that Jesus taught that are just about farmers and seed can become far more than that. Uh, but if you don't want them to be, they don't have to be. It can be just a little two-minute talk that Jesus gave. 
That's why Jesus said in verse 13, that's why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, in them, that is the pagans, basically, or the, the people who were raised in the, in the local Jewish synagogue but hated it. Their parents made them go. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in, in them, which says, You'll, you will listen and listen. Week after week, you got to go to the synagogue. Week after week, you'd go to church because your parents made you. But you'll never understand it. Uh, you will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous, their ears are hard of hearing. They've shut their eyes and see nothing. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would heal them. There is a power, there is a healing power in the Word of God that can be gotten if you look for it. The Word of God can encourage you in your dark times, in your times of discouragement, in your times of depression, there's a word of hope that can be found in God's word. It's a beautiful thing that can help. The, uh, the, the second passage, and we'll look at it for just a moment before we conclude, is one that kind of is a nice follow-up to what we see in Isaiah, uh, in uh, Matthew 13. This is not from Isaiah 6, where Jesus was quoting from. This is from Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. And it says something about uh, that power of God to make that, that seed, that, word of, that, that Bible verse, come alive. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, and we'll use this to conclude. For just as the rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth, and this is God speaking, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. What Isaiah was saying, among other things, is that when you read, the, uh, and, and I'm interpreting it, I'm moving way beyond the literal words, but I think it's what he meant. When you have the seed of, of the word, when you hear the words of the Bible, um, and they're planted in your soul, you have a rain from heaven, you have the help of God, you have the, the life, seeds in a dry soil, if it's a dry seed in dry soil, it ain't going to do nothing. You got to have water added to that soil in order for that seed to grow. And in the same way, if you really want to understand what the Bible is saying, you're going to need to have something come down from heaven to help you uh, understand the word of God. Isaiah called it rain or snow, but, you're going to, but symbolically and real, truly, God can help us understand his word and find a way to apply it in our lives. Just as the rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return without saturating the earth, Again, providing an environment in which that seed can grow um, and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat. So my word, God says, that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I please and will prosper 
in what I send it to do. God wants to help you have his word. He's, he's provided the seed. It's in the form of the written word, the Bible. But it's not enough just to have the seed, just like seed requires water to grow. If, you'll, if you want to know how to make God's word encourage you in those times of discouragement, to give you hope when you need hope, in fact, sometimes to speak words of healing and guidance through difficult relationship situations. It's there, but it's only dry seed. It, it still requires the help of God. When you read the Bible, one last thing, ask God to help you understand it. Ask God to help you find a way to apply it and make it really relevant and alive in your life. God, want, God gave you the seed, but he'll also give you the water and it will be from heaven. God can help you with the power of his supernatural Holy Spirit to understand this word and make it relevant in your life. The word for, uh, for churches around the world today is to uh, listen to the words of Jesus and uh, know that they're going to come sometimes in puzzling forms and they're going to require, like that good old North Missouri walnut, it's going to require somebody to break it open. It's going to take some time but there's good stuff inside. Ask God to help you, and he'll help you. Get into the meat of that, uh, of that word from, from God. May the Lord uh, use these words for his glory.